The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you're about to listen to discusses the following works It, Carrie, The Shining, Pet Cemetery, and Game of Thrones. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. All right. Well, that music can only mean one thing. Right? It's spooky. It's October. It's time for our annual Halloween episode. Sometimes it's Halloween episodes, but it's always the case in October that we do at least one episode of um, Halloween-related things, things mm-hmm. that are in some sense spooky or otherwise. Um, this is, for me, you know, every year pretty much... Um, you know, if not the best episode or my favorite episode, uh, it's one of the ones that's the most fun to do. So I look mm-hmm. forward to this. And this year we're doing our episode on Stephen King. Stephen King, yeah. one of our favorites. Yeah, I, I remember a time in my teenage years where I just ate Stephen King books for breakfast. I mean, I was just constantly, I went through a similar phase with Michael Crichton, just reading the books. I would stay up all night uh, reading Stephen King books. Mm-hmm. And I, I just really enjoyed them. Um, I, I felt Stephen King, like no other author, could actually elicit fear out of me in the absence of anything. Like, you know, nothing scary is go- going on. I'm under no threat, but mm-hmm. I would actually be re- deeply creeped out reading Stephen King books. And I loved that. Yeah, yeah, same. I've, you know, more than one Stephen King book I read in just, you know, one or two, mm-hmm. um, you know, settings, um, just sitting down to read and not being able to stop for hours and hours on end. Yeah, I remember just I, reading The Stand in particular. I just, I absolutely loved that book and hated the ending. Mm-hmm. But the, the book was such an experience to read. I think he's just masterful with characters. Um, and in, in particular, his serial killer characters they always creep me out the bully in it mm-hmm. um oh yeah 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 one of the characters in in early in the stand uh people uh, people that could be the the um antagonist of the thing in their own right if there weren't some supernatural right. even scarier thing they're always just a minor character that they're they're always like the minor character that is still the creepiest character in the book right mm-hmm. uh, but not the big bad right given the big bad a run for the money and it's interesting because I always liked to to also read what would be considered great literature, but I I've always been a little bit frustrated by the elitism that people bring to literature. Really, I mean that you know. Um, so so if I read a great book that made a particular point um, that that was acknowledged by everyone to be high art, uh, then I could I could I could quote that book say in a philosophy paper to make a particular point. Mm-hmm. But nobody's it's unlikely that anybody's going to quote Stephen King in their philosophy paper because I, I think some people would view that like like quoting a romance novel or something like that. Yeah, you know, right. in terms of its 
Romance novel is a, a good way of putting it because it, it sort of gets lumped in there as really lowbrow stuff. I've, I've been involved, um, I remember back in the 80s, and lots of conversations were all reading Stephen King. And people going, oh, Stephen King's a no-talent hack. Uh, and, and just yeah, nonsense. That's nonsense. And then you know, somebody would invariably go, well, he's selling millions of books. But that doesn't mean anything, right? Um, mm-hmm. Debbie um, Boom saying, you light up my life and sold 400 billion copies, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, I've, I've been kind of thinking about that a lot, right? So there are certain forms of art um, that are sort of clearly and appropriately um, labeled as lowbrow, right? If you're a musical purist, for example, and you stumble across something like the Ramones, which, you know, I, I think the Ramones were just great. Um, but, you know, they're, they're not great musicians and the compositions are you know not very complex and all that. And I, I can imagine, you know, somebody making the case that, you know, as, as you know, composing music goes as an art form or performing music goes as a, an art form, that they didn't um, rise to great heights, right? I mean, what they did is that you know, they provide this really catchy, energetic music that lots of people dance to. But you, you know, it, it's a tough sell to call it great music. Um, but can you make the same argument with somebody like Stephen King, right? So he's working in a particular genre, which is horror, and the, the payoff of that genre is to have people be on edge, frightened, um, thrilled, chilled, right? Have that sort of titillating. Reading this experience, you know that there's not really um, it, you know, coming to get you. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're there. You might be in one of the settings from it, um, mm-hmm. you know, going into an old house or something and you'll feel creeped out. It's like, what what more can you ask from the genre, right? It's um, literature is great if the, the words are really great and all that. And I think Stephen King's words are really great. Um, mm-hmm. But there, there's got to be some payoff, right? The, the writing has to do what it intended to do and I don't think anybody uh, does horror better than Stephen King yeah I think that's right it, and it's interesting like I'm I'm thinking about how uh, someone like Stephen King might be compared to someone like um, uh, like Edgar Allan Poe right, right I mean right. so I, I it seems to me that people think of Edgar Allan Poe's writing as high art mm-hmm. even though in many cases it's just doing the exact same thing it's just maybe people have a snootier attitude toward uh, toward literature from that period. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, anything more recent gets labeled in that certain way. Um, yeah, and in, in some ways, Edgar Allan Poe isn't sort of as good at making the hair on the back of your neck stand mm, up mm-hmm. as Stephen King. Um, and then, you know, other things Edgar Allan Poe does better, right? Um, or, you know, does just as well. Certain imagery in Edgar Allan Poe, um, well, it's maybe not as scary as, you know, we normally want horror to be. Um, certainly is very vivid. And yeah, evokes a different, it's a, there's a different qualia. Yeah, about, yeah. Right, for sure. Uh, so one thing I'm, uh, I'm thinking about whenever I read Stephen King. Um, Can we just go back to the, the Edgar Allan Poe thing? Um, he had an advantage, right? This is not a fair comparison. One guy's in New England. The other guy's in Baltimore. Baltimore is way scarier then, um, is Baltimore not part of New England? Um, no, it's it's like mid-Atlantic states. Um, so yeah, right. Um, northern northern states versus southern states. Um, you know, I mean, bad things were happening in Baltimore. Stephen King's neighborhood. You know, the worst thing that ever happened is someone fell off their bike. You know, it's that it's much tougher. Right? He had he had less to work with. 
right? Baltimore's seedy and all that. <laughs> um, I enjoy Baltimore too. I, I like its seediness, but you know, different setting altogether, right? If you live in Transylvania and you start writing, <laughs> you know, as opposed to some guy that lives in Farmington, Utah, and starts writing, the, the guy from Transylvania has got a huge leg up. There's a castle right there to describe. Right. <laughs> okay, anyway, but back to, to your point. Yeah, I think so. Fear is. It's an interesting concept. Uh, I think we're inclined to think of it as something like an emotion, right? Uh, that it's not something that's guided by rationality necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I think that's an open philosophical question. And it may be that not all fear is the same. That yeah, some yeah. fear is just a sentiment. Some fear is just a, a reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe like a fight, fight or flight mechanism. But the other fears have rational components. Yeah, I wonder if a way to put it is that, you know, you, you can always ask the question of whether a fear is, is rational, mm-hmm. um, even if they're not exactly rational things, in the same way that you can you can ask about um, emotions, right? I mean, you, you don't have control over these things, but, you know, suppose somebody's in love with somebody and that the person that they love um, largely ignores them or is abusive or all that. Mm-hmm. You might say, so should you be loving that person, right? We, we can yeah. evaluate it and raise the question. Is that emotional response rational, even though we don't tend to think of emotions as rational? And similarly, you know, so suppose that, that you're, you know, afraid of um, snakes, right? And I'm afraid of vacuum cleaners coming to life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, your fear might be more rational than mine. Right? Yes. There's, there's some some reasonable appraisal of our views that has me coming out worse. Yeah, but some philosophers might be inclined to call that aptness rather than um, rationality. So for uh, states that don't involve, that aren't cognitive, that don't involve beliefs, the, mm-hmm. the, the, you'll, it'll, in the literature, it'll frequently be referred to like whether an emotion or a sentiment is apt as, apt, yeah. as opposed to, yeah. but, but I can see distinguishing between fears uh, in the following way that like sometimes you can reason your way into a fear. I mean, I, I'll think about like sometimes I'm sure everybody experiences this kind of thing, but I'll, I'll think my way into like being deeply concerned that someone that I love is going to die mm-hmm. because I think about, you know, I, I don't want to make this too unpleasant, but you know, you yeah. <laughs> think about, all, like, you know, maybe some threat is looming and you think about all the ways in which that could lead to that, to the outcome of your loved one dying. Mm-hmm. And then that sounds like you have reasoned your way toward, toward fear. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know if that's right. It may just be, you, it may just be that you followed a certain set of c- cognitive steps and then something emotive was the result yes. of those cognitive steps. The, the, the fear manifested itself out of a set of circumstances <laughs> yeah. where reasoning was, was occurring simultaneously. Or right. It, it might even have played a kind of causal role, but you didn't, oh, well, I should accept the conclusion, be afraid, and hence do so, right? Yeah. It's just that yeah. it's thought right. about it. And you... Right, right. Because, I mean, you could, uh, I, I would imagine you could um, reason all day long, and if, right, that's not going to necessitate that fear. That fear either happens or it doesn't. So you could, you could engage in the same practices over and over, mm-hmm. and sometimes it might elicit fear and other times it might not. So that's that provides some evidence for the conclusion that you're not r- reasoning to fear. You're right. reasoning, and then fear just happens or it doesn't. Yeah, this is all the time. I, you know, sometimes I reason so hard I scare myself. 
That's what everybody <laughs> says about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, one, one way that this comes up in, in, in uh, Stephen King novels is, of course, in It. Mm-hmm. The whole premise of the uh, novel is that Pennywise or whatever I, can manifest mm-hmm. himself into the fears of the children in the community. Uh, and some of those fears, uh, the fears are very different. Some of those fears seem intuitively rational and some of them don't. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, yeah, so there, there's some sort of interesting literature in the metaphysics of death on whether it's rational um, to fear certain things. And one position um, that... And in particular, a, fears, fear your own death, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and one position that... Well, I was going to say just sort of more generally. Oh, okay. Um, that gets a lot of attention and gets applied to one's own death is uh, that it's not rational to fear something um, unless you're in a position to do something about it, right? Mm-hmm. So one's own death becomes the kind of thing that it's not rational to fear because mm-hmm. it's inevitable. Although you might fear a particular death, right? Nobody's mm-hmm. worried about that, mm-hmm. so, you know... Um, you know, if you're in your um, kitchen eating lunch and a tiger jumps through the mm-hmm. window, right? At that point, it's perfectly rational to fear, you know, because mm-hmm. you do have some control, right? You, you might be able to get away or fight it mm-hmm. off or, you know, whatever it takes. Um, but that just seems very wrong to me, right? Me and and yeah. that, um, you know, things, things like a good horror novel provide good counterexamples to that. Right. I, I think that there's something sort of rational about fearing these things that, you know, can't happen mm-hmm. um, because they've been presented to you in the right sort of way. Right. Again, with the, yeah. the brilliant imagery and the cleverly you know, thought out concept. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a great example. Um, I didn't I didn't read the book um, when I was younger and, until after I'd seen the original um, you know, TV two week miniseries. It's yeah. um, like really fun. Yeah, which which was great. Uh, you know, and I was sort of a young adult, and you know, I was into a lot of horror. And things didn't normally scare me, but mm-hmm. I was watching that alone in the dark, and mm-hmm. then suddenly, you know, there I am, terrified of Tim Burton's um, Pennywise. You yeah. know, um, and I was like, well, of course, this is not a real um, sort of thing, and yet it, it 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 the way it was presented caused me to. You know, mm-hmm. just have little tiny bits of, okay, well, now i got to go in the dark room. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know. Yeah. I'm just <laughs> walking a certain way and feeling a, a certain way. And it's, um, yeah, and there's and it, it doesn't strike me as that that's irrational, even though reason would have you say, well, that's not real, so I shouldn't fear it, right? But like we were saying a moment ago, yeah, you don't, it's very human, right? Reason's a slave to the passions. Mm-hmm. You don't get to use reason to change your your passions, right? I just want to say, um, when I first saw it, I was disappointed. Um, I thought it was about um, cousin it from the Adams family, <laughs> and then you know I saw Pennywise and I thought, oh well, great, he got a haircut, and now he's a clown. <laughs> okay. um, and none of that was right. Um, a whole different thing. But but as I got into it, it was very good. So I, I so coming back to the point about. It being irrational to fear something if you can't do anything about it. Uh, that's all, that almost seems like a stoic kind of position. Like you mm-hmm. can't control features of the world that are external to you. You can only control what's internal. Uh, but then, then that seems to just another critique of that idea is that 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 tends that that seems to uh, like 
butt heads with the very notion of why we feel fear in the first place, right? Yeah. I mean, presumably fear is an ev an evolutionary mechanism that um, motivates us to avoid danger. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, kind of like, I don't know, zenning um, fear away. Yeah. <laughs> Seems problematic, right? Like if there's if a lion is in my house or whatever mm -hmm. your example was, I should feel fear. Like it's, yeah. I shouldn't just go, well, lion's faster than me. There's nothing I can do about it, so I'm just gonna remain calm or whatever. Like, I should probably run, you know. And and I mean, and fear motivates my running. Right, right. The the flight or fight sort of thing kicks yeah. in, and and it's interesting in the case of um of it. Because so each character is afraid of something different, um, uh, or, or uh, Pennywise is exploiting a different psychological fact about them, um, and so in one case it's like disease, mm -hmm. right? And in one case it's the bully. Uh, um, one of the kids is afraid of the bully. I mean they're all afraid of the bully, but for one, one is they manifest yeah. itself as their primary fear. Um, one is scared of their own sexuality, and and so on. Um, in, at least in part. Uh, and I, so what makes it different, though, is that not only, like, there's an added external incentive to stop the fear because it, they, they learn early on that if they, if they behave as if the fear doesn't exist, then mm -hmm. Pennywise essentially goes away. Yeah, loses that he its power and then they can banish yeah. him for 26 years or yeah. whatever it is. The story has always been a little. I mean, you know, it's it, it rings of this like fatalist, fun, spooky feel, but uh, it kind of undermines its own message, right? Like that. Okay, if we band together in friendship and we uh, we work together to fight our fears, mm -hmm. then we'll be able to conquer our fears. And then it's like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> you know, twenty years later, you got to conquer your fears again in the form of some weird spider. I always think that. Stephen King endings are not the best. Like mm -hmm. I, all, everything building up to the endings is great, and then the endings are like, huh? Yeah, F famously <laughs> the stand. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, I was so disappointed in the ending of the stand. I still loved the book, but I was. Mm, yeah, okay. it sort of smacks of the the um, winter arrives in Game of Thrones, where oh okay, then Arya just like stabs the dude and it's over. <laughs> you know, the White Walkers and it's like, bam. And... Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so I also think in terms of philosophical concepts that, uh, that it explores good themes about friend, the philosophical value of friendship mm -hmm. and how to distinguish real genuine friends from, you know, maybe just people that, that bring certain kinds of pleasures to your life. Mm -hmm. So you've got, uh, you've got different groupings of people in, in it. So consider the, um, the bully group. Mm -hmm. You know, they all kind of play on one another's insecurities and they're cruel to, they, they, they like egg each other on to be cruel to one another. And so they're all getting these kinds of transitory pleasures, but you, do, you don't get the sense that any, that the, this bully group is actually friends with one right. another. Yeah, right? no. Although they may be useful to one another um, for, for, promote, for the promotion of happiness. Uh, but I think that the, the friend group uh, that, exists in in um it is more a kind of like an aristotelian models more of an aristotelian conception of friendship mm -hmm. according to which they're making each other more virtuous and so on yeah right yeah supportive the losers club 
Um, yeah, and just sort of related to that, um, one thing I think that Stephen King does very well um, without beating anything to death is the perfect backstories for all of them. Mm-hmm. You, you get exactly what motivates. You know, the, the main bully's um, abused by his father, and they show just enough of that to mm-hmm. have you kind of go, okay, I see how that right. person gets that. And then with each member of the Losers Club, you see you know, why they have the anxieties they have. Um, you know, and, and for each of them, why they're determined are the ones that, um, you know, back off aren't and, and so forth. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, they're, they're satisfyingly complete in that kind of way. Um, yeah. And maybe appealing just for philosophical reasons to, if not some kind of determinism, right, at least some sort of deterministic force, right, mm-hmm. if things aren't fully determined. Right, it's it's certain certain forces are bringing about certain states affairs in almost every character. Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, we could just talk through some of the some of the major works of Stephen King. So we already talked about it, but I, so one of the one of the books I really enjoyed, and just like remember reading it in the bathtub till it fell apart. Mm-hmm. People are going to judge me with regard to how I treat my books after saying that comment. But, um, <laughs> but I, I was a teenager and just we, could not... We go through more Kindles than I can tell you about for, for that reason. No. Oh, you, you just mean the I, regular I'm books. Good. I'm better with my books now. Okay. But I just, yeah. No I Kindles couldn't... in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. No one has Kindles anymore. Um, that's not true. I was reading for my Kindle just the other day. Oh, all right. You're the last one. No, that's... <laughs> I think e-readers are probably more popular than ever. Yeah, just not... You just don't have to People buy a special one. You use your smartphone and your iPad and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Pet Cemetery. Uh, just loved it. Uh, read it straight through and to, to the end, uh, scarcely taking a break. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of the Ramones, a darn great theme song for the movie, right? Oh, yeah. The Ramones song Pet Cemetery. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I think this, uh, this explores some interesting philosophical themes pertaining to death. Mm-hmm. So um, questions about whether... I think the tagline is something like sometimes dead is better or something like that mm-hmm. and so the premise of the the thing is you can uh, there's this there's a pet cemetery but just beyond the pet cemetery y- you could bring a dead you, you could bury someone in the ground and bring them back to life mm-hmm. seemingly and I, if, if I remember right it remains ambiguous exactly what's going on so you bury your dog in, in the back behind the pet cemetery and it comes back but it acts kind of weird yeah. Uh, so at minimum, you've got something in your dog's body. Yeah. That's that's alive or right. The body has been revived in yeah. some way, it, animated to some extent, but maybe undead or maybe who knows what. Right. And yeah, open question whether it's in fact the dog. And so the 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 main character, uh, the, the the child of the main character is killed by a truck. There's a busy road outside of the their, their home and the child goes out on the road and gets killed by the truck and uh so of course the the grieving father goes and buries the child in the pet cemetery just behind mm-hmm. the pet cemetery and the child comes back to life um and everything's happy it's a short story it just ends and the, the <laughs> christmas is just like it ever was and so that we're or su- not we're supposed to so there's some it's ambiguous like is it some ancient evil that's revived in the body or is it just the process of coming back to life that would make the reanimated corpse evil, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's the same person? And of course, we've... Right. we've and some evil sources 
is instigating all this, but you yeah. don't know if it's them or how what the mechanism yeah. is by which that's actually happening. And so, uh, so so the, one of, we we've talked about personal identity a lot on this show, uh, but like we said when we, we were talking last to week. right when we were talking to Nathan last week, like that's one of the most interesting questions in popular culture. So, you know, given that uh, the the child uh, is um, has a certain neural constitution and has certain physical traits mm-hmm. um is it possible for something to be reanimated within that body and mm-hmm. still fail to be the child yeah like in virtue of what right what would be yeah i mean so one way you could tell that story is if it's something like a soul right that mm-hmm. um yeah. yeah you replace joe's soul mm-hmm. with bob's soul and yeah, they're, they're different souls, but Joe's was good and Bob's was evil, right? They dragged one up from hell and yeah. plugged it back in. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the story they're telling. It's, it's unclear. It I is think, unclear, I think, yeah. you know. So, so that's the model according to which personal identity is just like a, the soul is driving the car of the body and the body is doing none of the work, right? Mm-hmm. That there's no explanatory value in appealing to brain states, which right, seems right. totally wrong. But of course it's horror, so who cares? Yeah. Um, but Different universe. <laughs> but then, so this raises some issues about regarding badness of death. And most of the kind of interesting questions about the badness of death, and the ones that you cover like in your metaphysics of death class, have mm-hmm. to do with whether or not, if we're stipulating that de- death is an experiential blank, whether or not death can be bad for the person who dies. Right? Mm-hmm. But I think really um, the, the question is sort of like, is it bad to bring someone back from the dead? Yeah, for uh, you, right? For you. Is it bad for me to bring them back? And, or for the person, too, because you don't know person. what... Yeah. Right. Um, given that we don't... It's not entirely clear what's going on in this metaphysics, right? This crazy metaphysics within a horror novel is like, okay, well... It's kind of an epistemic question. So you've never brought someone back from the dead before, and for the entirety of human history, you don't know of any cases of people coming back from the dead. And now you think it's possible, mm-hmm. um, but you don't know what happens to the person when you do it. And so uh, is it ever right? Would it ever be right for you to do it, given your epistemic position? I mean, it's kind of like the same questions that arise in Frankenstein. Right, right. Yeah, you know? I was just thinking that exactly. Yeah. Um, at the same time, unless it's horrible to be the, the dead thing brought back, mm-hmm. you know, from its perspective, um, there, there may be an interesting argument in, in favor of doing it, right? That, you know, if you're willing to do it for you, uh-huh. um, regardless how it turns out, it can't be bad for that, that entity. Um, now, unless it doesn't have a life worth living. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, if it's, yeah. if it's not horrible. So what I'm thinking is a, a variation on the, the non-identity problem, yeah. right? How yeah. am I yeah. harming yeah. that being when I'm giving it existence? And so, you know, when you watch like zombie films, um, you know, or The Walking Dead or something, there's always some character that, you know, gets bit and they say, I don't want to be that thing. Mm-hmm. You know, kill me before it happens. And it, just, yeah, yeah. it happens a yeah, lot. Yeah. Right, because we don't want to be that thing. But there's, there's some reason to wonder if we are going to be that thing. And so you, you take it differently. You just say, from that thing's point of view, mm-hmm. is it bad to be that thing? Provided Nobody... it's having pleasurable, more pleasurable experiences than painful experiences. Yeah. And so I have a, a great example of this in mind you know, uh, as a variation or a version of the Frankenstein theme. 
Um, and the, the first iteration of Penny Dreadful, you know, everybody thought, oh, it's that monster. It's a, mm-hmm. a Frankenstein. That was the, the maybe most human character on the show. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, led a life that wasn't without pain or a, a post-life and, you mm-hmm. know, an afterlife yeah. uh, rebirth. Um, but one that was meaningful and rich and yeah. complex and emotional. So, you know, so when you think, well, boy, I'm not, I don't want to turn my kid into that. Uh, it really depends on how it cashes out. Yeah, maybe you don't want to do that to your kid. Maybe your kid doesn't want that to happen. But if all you're doing is taking some flesh and mm-hmm. animating it such that something that's um, not quite human is there, you know, it'd be like making a fish, right? I mean, it's, uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, uh-huh. it's not obviously bad to do to that. Now, it might be bad to do to you for a lot of reasons, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're there, you know... Um, you know, you, you think it's it's your recently deceased child. You know it's not. It's just painful, right? You don't mm-hmm. get closure. You don't move on. Yeah. You're just dealing with this over and over, yeah. you know, for a very long time and, until it tries to kill you and then you, you have to kill it. And, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, there may be good reasons from your own point of view right. not to do that. Um, but yeah. not always obvious that it's bad for the other one, even if it's, even if it's a zombie. Right. So uh, maybe... I'm saying arguably the most popular, but I, it is probably the most popular Stephen King novel. Maybe but now, I, just because of the recent movies. And, and maybe even before. So I think that the thing that gives it a, um, a run for its money is The Shining. The Shining is the it, one I would have uh, said. But that's, that's, I think that's less because, less because of the book and more because of the Kubrick film. Yeah, right? so, Which Nicholson, was just amazing. Um, a slightly different storyline, but amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, so I loved reading the book, The Shining, but I maybe is it's maybe the the one and only instance of a Stephen King um, adaptation that uh, into a film that I think is maybe even better than the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let me for just for our listeners be the first to say it. Kubrick, mm-hmm. not a bad little director. <laughs> okay. He he had a touch. That's bold of you. <laughs> yeah, just. Some, I, something about his stuff. Most people don't think it's any good, but I do. I'm <laughs> right there on that, that limb. Most of the time, adaptations of Stephen King films, the problem is they show you the thing. And the thing is always much scarier in your imagination, right? Whatever the big yeah. bad is. Like, once they start, like, here's some CGI or whatever, it's like, yeah, oh. We always say this about CGI, but with Stephen yeah. King shows, it, that seems to be particularly true. Yeah. Um, Pennywise being an exception, but... Even for me, Pennywise is not an exception. Yeah. Maybe it's because of my first exposure was the, the Tim Burton one. and Or Tim, Cur- or, or Tim, Tim Curry. Tim Curry, Curry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, and just thought, oh, man, it's, this is so creepy. When you said that earlier, I was like, oh, did Tim Burton make did the Did I say Tim series? Burton earlier? Yeah, yeah. But I thought maybe Tim Burton made the miniseries. Oh, no. <laughs> no, yeah. I, that was pre-Tim Burton, I think, um, uh, doing any kind of stuff. Sorry, folks. Tim Curry. <laughs> Frankenfurter. He, he played Frankenstein sort of once. <laughs> something uh, yeah so the shining uh so i, I remember I, i'm sure that the shining has more philosophical uh content than i remember it having um because i remember just being super super sucked in sucked into uh to the book to the movie to the various remakes that they shouldn't have even bothered but mm-hmm. nevertheless i'll always watch an adaptation yeah uh, right. uh i mean once it's been done so well why do it again and mm-hmm. i guess in response to Cha-ching. there's that but but i think that Another response is, uh, well, maybe we'll actually do it in a way that where the storyline matches 
the book because it doesn't in the Kubrick film. Right, right. So, but um, the, the differences aren't that great, you know. It's the the maze instead of the topiary and things. I, I read some the plot, plot book, differences at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read the book um, right around the time I saw the movie. It was just before uh-huh. seeing the movie, and, uh-huh. and thought they're not ultimately all that different. Hmm. Right? Seems hmm. like more structural pieces in the the hotel and whatnot. More, uh, uh, more supernatural stuff that plays a role in the book than in the movie. Right, the topiary coming to light. Right, and, right. And that, yeah. Um, just wanted to, as an aside, say um, The Shining is the, the work that most resembles um, life today, right? Mm-hmm. So um, our house is considerably smaller than the Overlook Hotel, um, and it's not winter, but we have been cooped up in the same building, three of us, you know, mm-hmm. um, you and I, and what's our son's name, Danny. Um, yeah, he's not as weird as the kid in The Shining, clearly. And, and we're all like communicating with people via telepathy. And yeah, yeah. So um, there's that. But we're like um, Jack Torrance in the book, we're both writing books mm-hmm. during this time. And I opened up Rachel's computer the other day, and, and it, there was like 10,000 lines of all work and no play makes Rachel a dull girl. And Hen and I are a little bit frightened. <laughs> you should be. No. All right. So anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I'm thinking about philosophical content here. And it's, it's, it's just such different metaphysics that I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so, so, you know, people can communicate with one another with their minds, or at least the people who have the shining uh, or who shine or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I, I think there's some interesting, um, though ultimately really philosophically sloppy, but it doesn't need to be philosophically clean because it's a horror film or yeah. a horror, horror, horror book. Um, uh, thoughts about time. So um, people who shine can, at least some, uh, people's shining manifests itself, manifests differently in different people, but um they can see the past or they can see the future. Mm-hmm. But one of the odd, and in a fatalist way, where it's like, you know, we did, we even in past episodes distinguished between determinism and fatalism, where determinism is this, like, uh, the, the state of nature uh, at the beginning of time taken together with the laws of, uh, the state of things at the beginning of time taken together with the laws of nature are going to provide certain a certain sort of causal story mm-hmm. that's going to inevitably lead to certain certain effects right certain right. whatever whatever happen. happened had to happen yeah in virtue of um, and where fatalism is the view that uh, there's a thing that's going to happen it's going to happen no matter what right so um, uh, if if there's the, from Van Inwagen's book on free will one of his books on free will uh a fortune teller tells you black is going to kill you. Um, then no matter what you do, you know, you take a, you take a plane to uh, India to avoid it. And there's black when you get off the plane ready to kill you. And if, mm-hmm. if you hadn't, if you'd gone to France instead, black would have been there ready to kill you. So I think often in Stephen King uh, books uh, and in the shining in particular, it's this more fatalistic view that like, okay, the, the person who's shining is seeing something in the future and there's lots of paths that might lead there. But then it takes this other, <laughs> there's this other dimension of it because it always seems like, and you can avoid it, in which case it's not really the future. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the characters take steps to avoid it. 
And so I guess the idea is supposed to be that they've then hopped into some alternate timeline. Yeah, where a possible future that you avoid and yeah. end up a different possible world or different timeline. Right, so they were on the timeline that was leading there. And so it was, I guess, accurate to say that that was the future in that timeline. But once you hop, you do mm-hmm. a timeline hop, then you're in a different future. I guess that's a way to make sense out of it. Yeah, and then, you know, at the ending of the movie, um, you know, they show the picture of the New Year's party at the Overlook from the 1920s, right? I think just before... Uh, the crash of Wall Street, and then there's Jack Torrance in the, the picture, uh-huh. right? So yeah. there's this temporal aspect where not people who have The Shining, but people who are affected on by the supernatural natural entities mm-hmm. um, in the hotel can be put in different times, or maybe mm-hmm. all times. You know, maybe yeah. once once he joined the hotel, he was there in its past, yeah, present, and maybe yeah. subsequently, yeah. Okay, so the final the final uh, novel that I wanted to talk about is Carrie, uh, which is also a favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, One that I also would have said is more popular than it before the the new movies came about, but certainly not now. Um, not that it matters, mm-hmm. but yeah, you know, Carrie is one of the ones that everybody thinks about when they think Stephen King. But um, mm-hmm. the the recent remake of Carrie, which I thought was very good, wasn't of the you know significance of the recent remake of it you know in terms of box office right yeah it was the the new it was almost you know harry potter-esque or hunger games-esque it was mm-hmm. a big event whereas, yeah broken oh, into two parts yeah, yeah look there's a new carry out and, yeah and it was fun yeah but that said like i think that if henry our son were to watch the old carry and the new carry he would significantly prefer the new carry mm-hmm. even though i think the old carry is certainly better yeah but you know the the shinier thing uh, the kids are gonna like more. Yeah, I, I uh, don't I don't get that, but I I get that it's a phenomenon. Yeah. Right? And well, we know people that won't watch black and white movies. Why did you do that? You know, it's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, like, that's just old timey looking. <laughs> I mean, the, the the quality, the production value in the '70s wasn't like it is today. But sometimes that's a bad thing, right? Like mm-hmm. we were saying, the CGI is so advanced, everybody you know has to dump the mm-hmm. most elaborate thing on you. And sometimes all you need is a good puppet like um, E.T. or something, and it's perfect yeah, for yeah. the... Yeah, that sometimes sometimes the, the higher tech stuff is missing some of the storytelling force. That, that said, I, I really liked the new Carrie, so yeah. uh, I think they did well with Just it. Just one more thing on those lines. I mean, if you compare any of the recent Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies mm, to right. the originals, just the right. crappy, grainy, probably shot in Super 8 mm-hmm. originals, so creepy and yeah. everything else just looks kind of slick and a lot like everything else, right? They all look like an episode of Baywatch, only there's no beach. Um, <laughs> yes, and even that is a very dated. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, uh, yeah. The new Baywatch, right? <laughs> Baywatch 2, Electric Boogaloo or whatever it is. Okay, anyway. So I think the two main um, interesting themes from Carrie are... Um, retributivism and uh, moral, this idea of moral responsibility under duress. And what then also like what makes for a good guy? Because I mean, I remember when I first read Carrie and I mean, the, in the book, I, so I think the, the book categorizes the earlier treatment um, of Carrie in a much more vulgar kind of heart-wrenching way than either of the movies, right? Mm-hmm. Just, you know, 
uh, and it's, you know, if you've been a teenage girl and you know how teenage girls treat one another, it feels very real too. Uh, uh, and so, you know, Stephen King's describing the way, in fact, like right now I'm picturing seeing kids bullied when I was in like junior high and some of the things that I'm remembering, I can't remember if they were in Carrie or they were in, they were things that I witnessed in junior high. <laughs> so, Indistinguishable. Yeah. So, so, I, uh, so th- then you, you get hooked on that. And then when Carrie starts wreaking havoc, you're sort of like, yeah, get them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's interesting because that, you know, yeah. Retribution's the way to go there. You like that, mm-hmm. but then you don't want retribution for Carrie. I mean, she kills no, more people. No, you want everybody. her to get away. Yeah. yeah right. So, so, it, so it's not a firm commitment to, yeah. Yeah. Uh, retributivism that, that come what may. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just like that there are certain kinds of indignities that should just... I mean, and I'm saying this as a person who fully doesn't believe in retributivism in the real world. Like, I think I think retributivism is... I don't know. Maybe I should pause. Sometimes I feel like, oh, man, justice requires X, right? Mm-hmm. But I think of retributivism as being a horrible... Uh, philosophy of punishment, for example, because I think it fails to take into account the amount of the, the or lack of, I should say, control that people actually have over right. the events that give rise to how they're going to behave. And, and takes us back but, to the the bully and it, right? The way you get the glimpse of the way his father treats him. Yeah, and you, mm-hmm. it's a party that wants to say, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, he's awful. This guy's yeah. you know horrible, but look, look, I mean, yeah. look at yeah, look at how he got that way. Yeah. But you think it seems like like the amount of distress that these characters, including Carrie's own mother, mm-hmm. uh, put her in or cause for her, just makes the retributivism seem lovely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like right, blow yeah. it up, especially when the, the <laughs> burn it down. It. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Okay, Richard, what are we liking this week? Oh, that was a switch. Um, yeah, all right. So one, um, you know, there's all this stuff that we've been watching and we've been talking about um, recently and a lot of the same stuff. But um, given where we are in the um, election cycle and all that, we haven't been watching a lot of pop culture. We would... And also just totally overloaded with work. And overloaded with work, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, you know, we we've, we've um, you know watched some movies on, um, you know, the Netflix and whatnot, and nothing too remarkable. Um, but of note, um, the last couple weeks um, of political news has been extremely interesting. So um, yeah, my my favorite part of it uh, would have to be um, last night's um, remake of The Fly, right? <laughs> um, the, the debate. Culture. Yeah. So my students, um, this is being recorded the, the day after the um, vice presidential debate, and uh, my students wanted to talk about it this morning, and they said, "Well, what did you think?" Um, and I said, "It was a weird debate. You know, it was moderator asked questions, candidate A launches into prepared." talking point speech, candidate B does the same thing a little, that's not true, yes it is, back and forth. Um, just fine, you know, um, it wasn't the debacle that the first presidential debate was. Um, you know, it was nice to see some civility. 
And then all of a sudden, something really interesting happened. A, a fly landed on Vice President Pence's head. And, you know, it gets his white <laughs> hair and the, the size of it. It was been the biggest fly ever. You know, and it was very black. It, it was just there. And suddenly the whole country is watching. It's like, when's this fly going to leave? <laughs> and it just doesn't, right? And I'm thinking, now this is entertaining. And, you know, instantly my mind went to that great episode of Breaking Bad where they've, you know, got their meth lab and they need to keep it completely clean to make the world's purest meth. And a fly shows up, right? Yeah, so, that great existential episode. Yeah, so suddenly we've got the existential vice presidential debate, right? They, <laughs> what is the significance of this fly? What does that fly want? Why is he doing that? Why did he go to Pence, right? And there's a million internet memes and, and all of that. Um, that's the thing that I've enjoyed the most. And I just keep thinking, weeks. When, when we, we took our son to Disneyland, uh, when he, I guess he was six or seven mm-hmm. with, with his best friend, we took a trip. And we've yeah. taken him lots of times. But Road that was the trip. time he got to go with his best friend. And we, we, drove we get in the van, and they're excited. And Henry says, hmm, at least there's a fly in the car. Right, right. Yeah, it's, a, <laughs> so, no. it's a family favorite, right? So, yeah, I'm thinking this debate sucks. But at least there's a fly on the vice president's head. Yeah, yeah so um, that's, that's what we're like this week. Yeah. And in fact, you know, from now on, if, the Presidential Debate Commission can't promise me that there'll be at least one fly or you know some kind of dirty insect yeah, creature on, on at least one of the candidates. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could do some sort of Kafka essay <laughs> you know, actually get a candidate you know to turn into a beetle, a dung beetle on the spot? I think I can't handle any more absurdity. Yeah, it, it's just getting crazy. Um, so I'll be glad when the whole elections over it's um exhausting but every now and then you get these moments of levity and um (laughs) something nice about it okay rach that's a wrap another episode is in the can and once again everything has come up charbonneau please visit our webpage that's i think therefore i fan.com all one word to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.